Hey everyone, Alex here. Hey, listen, we have a new series starting on the Newstack Makers. It's called the Tech Founder Odyssey. It's about technical founders, those people who are engineers who are starting their own companies. We've had the best feedback from people already on Twitter. The questions are awesome, and it's really going to be guiding us as we develop this series. We want to know about these people, why they got started, what motivated them, what were the lessons that they learned along the way. What is it that they've learned about themselves, about their backgrounds, about the people who they've hired to work with them? How have they grown this venture into something that will last? It's a big deal for these people. And I think it's a big deal for a lot of us who've thought about doing these kinds of things and are part of the companies that these engineers have started. We hope you enjoy it. Again, it's the Tech Founder Odyssey on the New Stack Bankers. You're listening to the New Stack Makers, a podcast made for people who develop, deploy, and manage at scale software. For more conversations and articles, go to the newstack.io. All right, now on with the show. Hey everyone, Alex Williams here. We are here with Ryan Dahl, co-founder and CEO at Dino. Ryan, I have followed your career for some time. I am so excited to have you on the show. I wanted to ask first about Dino and what you could tell us about it. And then we had some questions that came in a few weeks ago. They were really good questions that came in over Twitter when I was just previewing this series that we're doing. And so I thought I'd ask some of those questions. I am going to want to ask about Dino, the brand, because I had said beforehand that I have been doing my research and I understand that Dino, as in Fred Flintstone, is spelled D-I-N-O, but it's pronounced D-E-E-N-O. And so I'm wondering if there is a backstory there at all. Well, first of all, hello. Well, the backstory is that it's an anagram of Node, and the the pronunciation oh. was uh, backported to uh, fit the dinosaur character. So, oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. I guess they weren't thinking about Node back in the day when Hanna Barbera was developing the Flintstones. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. But listen, tell us about Dino. Tell us about the company and you know what it is you're doing. Yeah, so we have a JavaScript runtime. It's, it's pretty similar in essence to to Node. I mean, it executes some JavaScript, but it's it's much more modern. So this this project was started four years ago, a bit, bit over four years ago. Basically, as a demo project, I, I was giving a conference talk and kind of thinking about Node and and kind of reflecting on on how it went after 10 years of it being out in the wild and uh you know really really kind of whenever whenever you write some code you you kind of can't can't help but look back and and you know hindsight is 2020 right and yeah just just started playing around with with uh what it would be like to develop a kind of modern server-side uh javascript runtime these days and I didn't really think that this demo would, would go anywhere, but people got pretty interested in it and uh, we, we kept working on it. I, I think kind of the foundation of, of this is, is that as it has, you know, uh, there's many, many components to it. So, you know, for one thing, it's written in Rust instead of C++. Uh, it's, it uses a different event loop library. Uh, 
it, it does use non-blocking I/O like like Node does, but but uses uses a lot of different in infrastructure. But I, I think at its core, uh, Dino is is kind of fast and easy and secure. So we really put a lot of effort into, you know, driving driving a web server as, as fast as possible, kind of doing non-blocking IO properly. We use this this library called Tokyo in Rust to to do a lot of that. In node days we use something called libuv. So Tokyo kind of replaces libuv. We put a lot of effort into making this kind of developer friendly, easy to use, kind of working out of the box in in the node world, in the node NPM world. You have a lot of build tooling that's kind of been added to over the years, and uh, it shows when you when you get started with a with a new project, especially if you want to use TypeScript. Uh, you you tend to have to do all of this setup, and yeah, our, our our take is that this should be basically part of the runtime itself and and built into the system. So. Dino can do TypeScript transpilation, for example, that's kind of built in. It has kind of VS Code editor integration built in. Yeah, and, and secure. It's it's uh, JavaScript, the V8 runtime that, that we use, V8 from being the JavaScript runtime of, of Chrome, is a secure sandbox. And in the Node days, we just plugged holes in that everywhere to, to kind of create servers and, and interact with the operating system, do server-side JavaScript. Um, and of course, Dino plugs holes in that as well, but we put security checks at in, in each hole so that you can kind of optionally control how your code is going to interact with the operating system, which is, you know, pretty important, especially if you depend on open source dependencies that you have not necessarily audited and don't necessarily know what sort of things they're doing. So you can really... In Dino, you can you can run some some code and, and kind of step through each of the attempts to access the system, whether that's like accessing some some uh, external server or accessing some file on your hard drive. You can can kind of step through and and either deny or or allow each of those. I'm curious about what you learned in terms of managing the Node.js project that you brought to Dino and how that has affected you know, your own management style. Uh, there's always learnings. You go from one project to another. I'm curious how you've learned how to manage it differently. Sure. I, I think that's one of the main main things that, that I'm trying to correct here with with, with Dino is, is kind of the, the organizational structure around the, the project. These projects, Node, Dino, are not kind of small little software projects that you do on the weekends. These are these are pretty serious pieces of, of the structure that require many, many engineers to, to work on them for many, many years. You know, they're 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 doing all sorts of stuff. And when software reaches that sort of scale, the engineering costs become pretty non-trivial. You you can't you can't just, you know, not work for for a few you know years at a time and 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 kind of pour your pour yourself into into the project. I mean for for kind of small smaller projects, maybe you can work on them during the weekend and give it away for free when it comes to like something like node you know it's not even just it's it's not that i i could just not work for years and and work on it i mean it's it's bigger than that even i mean it really requires many software engineers and very talented software engineers at that and this is like not free at all <laughs> i sold node early on to to my employer uh, joint and that was a really good deal for me personally, but but maybe not not the best deal for for the project. Joyent really saw Node as as a I'd say advertising opportunity for their cloud business, and as, as such, didn't really put the effort that or didn't put the resources that it should have in, into Node itself. 
And yeah, it, it kind of created a situation where it was like very clear in like, let's say 2011, that, that like Node was was really taking off and was going to be a, a very big deal, but didn't really have the ability to hire engineers to work on this and, and kind of direct effort as, as necessary because there wasn't a direct revenue stream attached to it. It was, you know, essentially this this advertising opportunity. The end result of this is is kind of the is this IOJS fork of this. This was essentially some of my open source collaborators revolting, you know, kind of a mutiny against against Joint happening because they they wanted control of the project and Joint wasn't really doing anything with it. And I think ultimately reached a compromise where Node moved into the Linux Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization for managing open source projects. I think that's a, a good place for for Node to end up. But it is kind of managed by, you know, a couple of representatives from large companies whose main interest is seeing that it does not make backwards incompatible changes. Not that it's it's trying to achieve anything necessarily. It's just trying to not break all of the existing software written for Node. It doesn't have this real kind of drive behind it. And there's, you know, there, there's some budget, you know, they can, they can pay people to, to work on some stuff, but there's not, there, there's not really a, you know, a singular direction or really core philosophy behind, behind what's going on there. You know, I, I think it's, it's pretty clear that, that, <laughs> that node is very useful software. I mean, it's used by millions of people and, you know, it's, it's, doesn't take much to imagine how this could could be be generating some some revenue by itself if if not directly then kind of you know one degree separated from some revenue so with with dino uh, this is organized as a for-profit company and uh, we are you know explicitly uh, generating revenue uh, because this is <laughs> this is uh, useful software and I think the software can be made better if, if it's not just this amorphous uh, uh, nonprofit that that's that's running it and so so with with Dino our, our product is is something called Dino deploy which is a, a serverless system that you know essentially you give us a JavaScript function that takes a request and returns a response, and we manage that infrastructure for you. So we we deploy that to data centers around the world, and you can give us a domain name, and we'll hook it up to that that function, and uh, you can serve uh, requests from that. Yeah, I, I'd say it's it's a lot more advanced than than what I've described. You can have imports, you can you can kind of generate HTML at the edge, can do kind of real time communication. Yeah, it, uh, you know, it's it's how we we imagine that that uh, kind of the easiest possible server can be written. It sounds like you've learned so much over these past several years from being a, I don't know if you were a technical lead at Joyin or if you were a staff engineer, what your role was there. But, you know, you make decisions in your life that have a real impact and you don't really see those impacts until much later in life. And that's kind of what I'm sensing here, here, you know, it's like you learned a lot from that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, <laughs> yes, I, I would say so. A lot of, lot of learning over, over the past 12 years or so that I've been working in this space. How, how have you gone through your own transition from, you know, being a hardcore engineer to an engineer who is also a CEO? Like, how do you manage that yourself? How, how do you approach that? How do you approach that in your day-to-day -day work? I, I'd say it's, it's relatively challenging <laughs> because like I, I feel I like programming a lot and would uh, ideally be spending most of my time uh, in an editor solving programming problems. That's not really what, what the job of, uh, of being a CEO is, is like. There's, there's a lot more 
communications. I mean, setting aside kind of founding startups and stuff, I think just just kind of being a manager in, in general, I mean, you're kind of operating at a larger scale, right? I, there's many engineers working on a project and uh, you're, you're trying to get them to work together effectively and kind of deliver features and make sure that you're working on the right problems. Uh, and that just requires a lot of communications. And, and so, you know, if you want to work on big software, <laughs> yeah, it's, at some point you kind of have to accept that that there's going to be uh, meetings and, and communication and and that sort of uh, stuff uh, and less time for working on individual problems. Yeah, it's it, it's fine because, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, I, I you know, I'm trying to accomplish, I, I'm, I'm trying to build some software that people use, as I said, I, I think this is this is kind of the right, the right thing to do at the moment. But yeah, I mean, personally, I, I, I would much prefer to sit, sip some coffee and, and kind of work, work through some, some uh, broken tests or whatever. I can totally relate to that. I mean, I started as a journalist and, you know, went into founding a, the news stack and, you know, and as a publisher, I don't have the opportunity to write. I, I miss those days of sipping coffee and, and, and writing stories for sure. So I can totally relate to what you're saying there. So, you know, what uh, Lee Calcote is a colleague of mine and he replied to me my question on Twitter when I asked about, you know, what kind of questions you would ask engineers who were founded a company. And he asked, by what principles do founding engineers prioritize their tasks in terms of time and how do they or don't they muster the discipline to stick to those priorities? And I thought that was a good question. It kind of relates, I think, to some of the challenges I think that you were talking about you face. You know, I, I take it one day at a time. I, I don't know if I'm I'm so if I have like a fundamental theory of of uh, management or anything. I'm just 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 trying to solve solve the problems as they come. I think what I realize is that as an engineer, like I don't want to be interrupted with meetings. You know, I, I don't want to to have too much overhead kind of communicating with people. You know, it, things should be as asynchronous as possible. And so I try to create that environment for for the people that that are working on on Dino uh, and try try to have have very uh, productive conversations, uh, short productive conversations. We try to pair program a lot. We're a pretty remotely distributed team. We're we're kind of founded during the the pandemic and and you know growing out of an open source project. And so we've got people all around the world. And so luckily these days you have Google Meets and it's really easy to screen share with somebody. And and so we we try to have. Uh, programming sessions. And I think that's a good way to, you know, both socialize, but also kind of dip your toes into different problems that are being worked on. But yeah, I, I, you know, generally, I mean, we're, we're just trying to solve the problems as, as they come up. And so, you know, at different times that can mean fundraising, or that can mean, you know, dealing with HR issues, or that can mean actually diving into some code and, and working on, on something. Yeah. It's, it's, I think, you know, managing a company, you're, you're kind of, the, the buck stops here sort of sort of mentality and and you're you're trying to you know get people in place to kind of take care of take care of issues and and build the system but at the end of the day i mean there's always there's always stuff falling through the cracks and so so uh, i'm just kind of dealing with everything else that happens <laughs> basically well you're talking about growing uh about managing asynchronous league maybe you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that because it kind of relates almost to the nature of programming itself. I'm curious on how you think about managing asynchronously. Yeah, I mean, my, my, my claim to fame is is like bringing asynchronous uh, sockets to the, the mainstream, right, with, with non-blocking, non-blocking IO and stuff. 
So, <laughs> you know, a- asynchronous is, is kind of deeply embedded in, in what I'm thinking about. But I, I guess when it comes to company organization, asynchronous means that we have rotating meeting schedules to adapt to people in different time zones. Uh, we, we do a lot of meeting recordings. So if you can't make it for whatever reason, you, or you, you're not in the right time zone, you're, you know, you're, you're picking up your kids, whatever, you can go back and watch a recording. So we basically record every meeting. We, we try to keep the meeting short. I think that's important because nobody wants to watch hours and hours of videos. And we use chats a lot and email our forms of asynchronous communication where you don't need to, to kind of meet with people one-on-one. And yeah, I guess, I guess the the other aspect of that is just keeping meetings to a minimum. Like there, there's, there's few situations where you really need to get everybody in the room and like everybody's situation. I mean, there, there are certainly times when you need to do that, but I, I, I try to avoid that as much as possible. Cause I, I think that that really disrupts the flow of a lot of people working. A lot of people uh, who are in these roles have families. They, you know, they have lives clearly outside of, uh, out of their work. How are you able to manage it? Um, you know, all of the work plus your personal life. I mean, it was a question people have. I don't know if you have kids, but I mean, this might relate to anyone though. How much work is taken on by, you know, a significant other? You know, lots of technical founders are only able to do what they do because their partner is lifting a lot in the background. They hardly ever get the credit though. That was a question that someone asked him. And I don't, I don't know what, is your situation similar to that or not? Yeah. Well, I, I just had a baby, uh, last December. So she's, she's eight months, months old and, uh, it's definitely, definitely challenging to, to have, have a young baby. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's wonderful, but, uh, also, you know, running a startup at, at the same time is, is, is challenging. Uh, my partner and I both work from home here, so I think that makes things quite quite easy. And and we live in New York City, and so the daycare is is just a block away. And so you know, I think we've tried to organize our lives in in ways to kind of minimize overhead. <laughs> you know, we we can kind of wake up and play with the baby for a few hours, and and take her to daycare, and and do our own work for for a few hours, and then have some family time in the evening. You know, I think anybody with kids knows that, that like, you know, this sucks up like 100% of your free time. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of challenging. I think you just deal with it. <laughs> I think I, I, it's fine. And, and yeah, I, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, you just, just kind of uh, take, take those challenges as they come. Certainly at other parts of my life, I've had a lot of free time to work on individual problems for very long periods of, uh, you know, just kind of sit down and, and hack uh, all night and so I don't really have that that luxury anymore. But also, you know, I'm I'm not not really in the place where uh, that's super useful anymore either. Uh, I'm more trying to trying to organize our, our company for for the most part. How much time are you able to spend coding now? And what are some of the fun things that you're you're doing that you're really enjoying? Is it just helping around kind of everywhere in the company or is it specific things? Like I said, it's it's kind of diving in where necessary. In particular, if, if I have, there's certain parts of the stack that, that I'm kind of the most familiar person. So in, in that case, I might dive into to that area. I think more commonly, it's about helping guide problems. You know, maybe recently we're running a bunch of different benchmarks and so so kind of analyzing different systems and kind of creating examples and and uh, kind of guiding our, our overarching benchmarking stuff. I, how much do I program per day? I'd say one hour at most, not mm. not too much, unfortunately. I, I hope, you know, I, I hope at some point that we can kind of 
get past some of our initial struggles and, and you know, hire the right managers. And, and I, I'll, I'll have the opportunity to spend more time there. But, but yeah, not too much these days. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your candidness and your, your technology that you're building. I could talk to you about the technical elements quite a bit on uh, you know what you're doing there. We were trying to understand a little bit more of what it's like to be an engineer turned to CEO, and you've helped in that regard. So thank you very much. Well, yeah, thanks, Alan. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's one of the best ways you can help us grow this community, and we really appreciate your feedback. You can find the full video version of this episode on YouTube. Search for the new stack and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any new videos. Thanks for joining us and see you soon.